This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a theatrical costume designer, illustrator, and character dreamer-upper. Her whimsical designs capture the crowd's imagination while advancing the storytelling. Coming up, the wholly original costume designer behind Teatro Zanzani and Cabaret Zazu, Beaver Bauer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hi. Welcome, Beaver. I'm thrilled to have you here. I know a little bit more about you than you probably are aware because I spent some time at Drea Weber's place when we were developing some material and I saw illustrations of yours, beautiful illustrations on the wall of her home. She is the director of Cabaret Zazu that I was able to collaborate with. And we've had her on the podcast about her many projects and movies, as well as a mutual friend, Frank Ferrante, who you have dressed in every kind of crazy, colorful garb. Tell me about that relationship. I know there are two different relationships there, but particularly taking a primary character like Frank and many different characters he's played and making those really critical decisions about how he's going to look and how that costume is going to behave. Why don't you just dive into to your relationship with the crazy world of Frank Ferrante? You know, I have to say, this is just the truth. Creating these characters and working with people as I get to know them and helping them make up a character rather than following something that's on a page, like from Chekhov or something, it has developed into a particular delight of mine. And of course, I also love fittings, tremendously so, because I feel that's like church to me. That's the moment when you are in this incredibly intimate situation with someone and you have a series of choices to make after you've created a drawing. And how much do you honor that drawing? And what does that person say, do, or move that you can either choose to respond to or be dictatorial to or not? But I feel like Frank and I started developing this relationship when he first came to Teatro Zanzani in San Francisco. And he was mostly doing kind of like a Groucho-y kind of thing and also doing a band leader. And But he was working with Stefan Haves and looking for a way to become something new for Zinzani and do fresh material. And so Stefan and Frank said, well, at, at this period, and we had, had named the character Caesar, of course, because of Frank's Italianness. And they said, well, maybe this last bit we do, this section at the dinner t- time where we have a lot of audience interaction, we want him to be the ultimate Caesar, lounge lizard. Right. That was the statement. And so I went home and I got this idea that maybe he kind of looked like a a Roman column in a a jacket that felt like a grand, you know, (laughs) with the top of like the Doric column as his shoulders. So it would give him an incredible amount of swagger and just really over the top. Yeah. I saw that costume, by the way. It's very architectural because it is very much like a column. It has, you know, a red velvet cape off the back, but it's a very funny shape. Frank is very physical performer. He knows I love it when he donkey kicks and everything he does on the tables that endlessly make me laugh no matter how many times I've seen them. And so I did this drawing and I showed it to Stefan and Frank and And then I didn't hear back for a while. And I thought, gosh, I guess they didn't like it. I'm so perplexed. 
And then at some point they came up and said, well, where is it? Did you start it? And I thought, oh my God, no, but I'm so excited. And so I got one of my favorite chums, Marina Agabekov, this wild Azerbaijan woman who makes costumes and made a lot of costumes in San Francisco. And I love collaborating with her because she was not intimidated by anything. And she joined in the fun and was very responsive in fittings and didn't ask questions like, are there five buttons on that vest and how big are they? Which is never the question I want to answer until the very last minute. I feel like my drawings and the way I look, I, I think I'm not selling an idea, but I'm putting an energy and an image out that I think says who this person is and that it's a guidepost that we're going to in a fitting and for the fabricator to make something that we can fit and then adjust it when we get into the fitting. And Marina is incredibly flexible and with that kind of behavior. And she always has ideas too, which I'm very respectful of because she is the artesian and she's the one who knew how to make these crazy foam shoulders and, and create this character. From there, it just went off running with Frank over the top. And our prop designer, Sean, I gave him the most fantastic entrance arriving in a cart, kind of like a gladiator or, you know, or Caesar coming in in a grand sweep. But of course, it, it wasn't played, pulled by horses. It was pulled by pigeons right. and, and flapping pigeons and Frank and his face coming in and one point we did put a pigeon on his shoulder, the quintessential pigeon on the statue in the square with the pigeon poop on it that has no respect for what it is. And it was such a grand entrance. And I always thought, and I think Frank would agree that something about the largeness and exaggeration of it in a way frees the audience members whom he chooses who frequently are in a state of terror because his task that he assigned them <laughs> was to perform a certain dance that he had created to I'm Too Sexy. And then it was a different song after a while. And of course, there's people who totally embrace it and might consider doing a strip to the ones who are <laughs> knocking. And Frank entreats each of them and draws them out and he touches them and manipulates them and teases them. But I think the exaggeration of the costume, and then we would put a lounge lizard jacket on each of them. I think that was the way to entreat and get the audience to walk in and that member and say, who cares at this point? I'm not even myself. I'm something else. And I'm in this crazy reality. And I think it freed them to be playful. Yes, because it's a party atmosphere. It works almost a little like hypnotism. Yeah. He engages them in something where it's more fun to do it than to fight it. <laughs> and he had, a, you know, this very funny way where he would go down their shoulders and hold their hands and talk to them. And, you know, it was just so beautifully structured because before they knew it, they were doing something. And the really gifted people who do these roles, like Frank, is that, they're able to make anything that audience member does, especially if they're retreated a little bit, become more so by their reaction, 
themselves to it, helps create it. I just think they're intrigued so far that they're that they're seduced. He seduces yeah. them. And the audience is seduced, and you know that their family members are going crazy in the audience and snapping pictures of them and run home and say, this guy pulled me out of the audience and put a jacket on me, and I had to do a sexy dance. There is very much an art form to that kind of performer, that kind of direction. You've mentioned some talented names. I mentioned Drea Weber earlier. You may mention Stephen Haves. These are people who are really experts at this kind of interactive, bigger than life, it's a combination of Cirque and Commedia dell'arte and improvisation. It takes a certain skill set. But what I want to put a pin in is I want to put in a pin in the costuming and how you are able in developing the character with them, how you are able to then understand, okay, movement is important. Safety is important. Humor is important. There's so many things you have to take into consideration. You know, what is the status of this character? Is this high status or low status? How long have they worn this outfit? So tell me a little bit more about what, what your thought process is in character development. Are you asking questions of yourself or of them to get there? It's truly, truly a collaboration. And I think that's what makes it so special to me because I can go home with my little sketch pad and drawn up an idea. You know, I can draw up hundreds of ideas. I think it's this process of, of getting to know the person and knowing that each of these characters and singers and anyone else who comes to us, there are minimalists. We do have minimalists who come to us who don't want anything on their head and they want to be really seen as themselves. And so I think it's getting into that and discerning it with each person. Who are they? Where do they live in this scale of exaggeration? Mm -hmm. And it is a circus. And, you know, I do get the famous statement sometimes of, well, it's not as if I'm joining a circus. And it's just, but you are. (laughs) But it's a different kind of circus. Tell me why it's a different kind of circus. It's very intimate. And I think the intimacy of the circus, the closeness of the people to the audience, and the fact that the performers do interact with the audience at times while they're being served a meal, and people might come up and do something unusual to them, or just notice it across the room and say, what is going on over there? And I feel like there's this moment where everybody arrives And they're, oh, I just left work and my mother-in-law is saying this and my internet isn't working or whatever it is. And they sit down at their individual tables and it's theater in the round. And then we have this thing called animation that starts before the first note of the band where the performers and some of them gradually come into the tent and do certain actions that begins awakening the audience. And I think there is a moment where that kind of separation of a table and a table and a table disappears. Mm. And you see the person across from you laughing and then, or you see the reaction of them when the person comes close to them or, you know, the unbelievable, amazing of somebody in a trapeze over your head doing something. So you perceptibly, I think are aware of your other audience members more than in a typical theater where you're sitting in every or proscenium where everybody's facing forward and the audience is in the dark and the performers are lit. Mm-hmm. This transgresses that and purposely 
transgresses that. And I think I did use the word addiction earlier. And I think that's why the performers who come to this particular groove, there's sometimes people who don't fit in. And I would say, this is a place where fit is really important. Or sometimes they'll say to them, well, you get to be kind of who you are, but bring it in and we'll make a character. Who do you want to be? Or who is this? And some people are like, hooray. And some are like, oh my God, what does that mean? And it's frightening to them. It's very frightening to be that close to the audience sometimes and not be on a script perhaps. Right. To reveal in some ways to reveal themselves through a character is vulnerable. It is. And, and sometimes the characters are very close to themselves and, and being circus, the performers, the circus act people frequently as compared to a usual actor, they come in perhaps known as number one for their act, what they do, juggling, trapeze, whatever it is. And maybe they have a persona that you've already seen, you know, like Victor Key, who is our juggler, who was on America's Got Talent. Every minute of what he does is captivating. Absolutely. He's mesmerizing and, and he creates an aura of something you kind of don't know what it is and you don't understand it. And this last show, the show's up right now, was the first time I got to design for him, which was really exciting to me, of course, because I admire his skills. I tell people a lot of times my best ideas happen on the bus. I call myself the bus queen because I take the bus in San Francisco. And for some reason, I like to draw on the bus. I don't know. I think it's that my body can't move. Of course, in San Francisco, the eye candy of characters is never left, nothing less than completely fertile. My mind opens up and all these ideas come to me on the plane, on the bus. I, it's one of my favorite places to enter this state of creativity and mm-hmm. like channeling, I guess. My idea for Victor, sometimes there's things you struggle and bang your head and what is it? I can't make it. I can't get into it. And I just sat down and I drew a boop, 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 like that. It came to me, you know, like this idea of him being a little bit in a Magritian kind of world of a mysterious person. You don't know who he is. You don't know what he is, that maybe he is a visiting spirit or a visiting Russian prince or whatever he might be, and that it's absolutely seductive. You can't quite figure it out. And that he's incredibly elegant. Victor is Mm. incredibly elegant. I hate to say it, but that particular Russian way that I feel a lot of Russian performers have, because I think they also get a lot of ballet training. But there's an austere kind of strength. And grace. Yes. A way of carrying themselves. And I think I think they're trained to hold that. And he's very neatly built. He has a great body. So I designed him this incredibly tailored, almost like a trench coat or a raincoat or a very tailored coat, but a cape attached to the back of it that would float. And if he mm. wanted to, he could put a belt over it in the back. But it was this really marvelous light lame fabric of a, of a really deep, mysterious blue. He had a staff with a crystal on the top that foreshadows his juggling balls and his illumination. But that gave a real mystical guide kind of a feeling. He's not death, 
the staff did something that actually was like, oh, he's going to take me down some mysterious tunnel. Or like the like the journeyman leading you through a realm and drew it. And, you know, I immediately, I had three views of it, front side back, just like that. It just was like, bang. And then we sent it to him. And then Drea Weber and I got on a, a FaceTime with him and he was on a cruise ship where he was performing. And he loved it right away. You know, he loved it and was really behind it. And then we were talking about the hat when it's a bowler, melon, as he called it, melon. And he said, oh, I have the hat myself. I have the hat. I will bring it. And so it was just hand in a glove perfect with his wonderful wife, Ulzi, the Mongolian contortionist of wonder. We almost put them in a show before, and that was a show that tanked because of COVID. I did a design for her, and Andrea had loved it, and she said, Oh, I'm so glad I'm not a, a, a low character this time because we had started her out. We were going to start her out as a cleaner in the tent on this other show. And so she's also in this modern kind of Victorian cape that once again, slave me to the people who make the costumes. He did such an incredible job. And we wanted this little cape, but still that you could see the waist. So she wasn't drowned out, but not reveal any of her skin or any real part of her until she did her circus act. Right. And he still, he made this little tie in it that shaped it so you could see the hint of her figure. And she's also so graceful. So, I mean, it was just a slam dunk. And, and he, you know, I don't know, you know, there are the ones that aren't easy and that are a struggle, but I think it's just that, that's just so delightful to me. And, and it can come from me and work with them. I've done ballet and Chekhov and, you know, I was always like Moliere girl for some reason. They always <laughs> gave me the Moliere's because they thought I was zany or kooky. Or- and, and there's a lot of responsibility in a show like that. You're doing a lot of characters in a lot of crazy ways. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is I think that it's just kind of hard to conceive this is Sometimes we get those people a week to 10 days before the show opens. And so we are in this brutally fast turnaround. Brutal. It's brutal. And it's brutal in that it's not like movie and TV. We don't have a costume shop and fleets of people to take the work on and go into overtime. And the situation sometimes is, is that the vendors are all off site. And they come to us to do the fittings and they run home with the costumes. And Mm -hmm. when a costume shop like we had in San Francisco, I can walk in every day and I'll see the things on the dress form and you can correct them and work every day with the person making it. And then, you know, you'll walk past one day and say, whoa, that's stupid. And you have times to correct it. It is a tight turnaround. And in full disclosure to the listener, you and I were working independently on the Cabaret Zezu project, which I think I came on, uh, I would say, about 45 days before. And we still were working with Frank on character, right? Frank on Andrea. When Frank was going to do a new character that other than Caesar, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be a nervous breakdown. Because no dish to Frank. He loves Caesar and he loves Familiar things. This is not a bad thing, but he loves things that are familiar. I mean, when we had to make like a new version of his costume, he would like go over to the old one and clutch it like this and stroke it during the fitting. And we were like, I hope he listens because the truth is he has grown so much in this latest character development. 
But part of it, and I will say this out loud because I'm proud of him for everything he did and how funny he is, but he used to give credit to Groucho's catalog of jokes and to Caesar's over-the-top cocktail hosting and ambiguous loving nature. So he was giving the character the credit and not himself for being the engine of the car. So there was a lot of psychology in saying to him, I don't want you to have Caesar's mustache, even for an insurance policy. Oh, I my don't God, want, he like you know. pulled up during a, a photo shoot <laughs> and was quivering, you know, and I was standing on the streets of downtown L.A. like, Frank, it's okay. It's okay. And yeah. you're right, Pat. This is I so wanted to be the one who went on this journey with him. And I think I would have been insanely jealous and hurt someone if they did it, <laughs> not me. So I saw some of the drawings. The costumes were ahead of even my work. And so I always hesitate to dismantle a thought, especially in progress. But there were a couple of things. And and one was there was kind of a hanging on to a lounge lizard thing. And we did change that to more of a formal tuxedo and tails and things that he had because the new character was going to make his way to a honeymoon suite. And I'll tell you, we made the best of all of the not just the changes, but the story moments that allowed him to be this beautiful immigrant bellhop that was a lifetime career guy who left his love in Italy. That was a really, really beautiful bellhop costume, which was the right way for the audience to meet him. I think so too. I thought no matter what, when I see Frank or when I've watched the video of his Groucho show, I see Groucho. I saw Groucho and Caesar. I started to see Caesar and Groucho. But however, what I told Frank is no matter what, I always still see you, Frank Ferrante. And Frank Ferrante is charming. He's very charming. And I'll tell you what, I don't see Groucho in this character because we started from a different place. And that was to make him a man of service. Because he was a bellhop, the notion was that he was there to care for people. So picking luggage up, taking things to honeymoon suites, doing all that. What that led us to from character development was that when the MC didn't show up, when the band was about to introduce Caesar, the big character, and he got caught in the spotlight, his service notion was, I will make this, so I will step in here and just try to fix this for the hotel. I will for the take moment. a of faith for everybody else. Frank is a uniquely talented guy, and regardless of how good you get at this, you still face a blank page with a new character and the anxiety of, will this be as good as my last effort and my hit and my big album? And I'm saying it in in salute to Frank because when we work with any of these type of people, and you work with a lot of them, Liv Warfield enters this tent. She's wearing costumes she's never, she's singing songs she's never, she's now doing aerial work that Dre Weber's putting her in. And it is, it blows your mind to hear her sing upside down from that. And that is growth, crazy growth. She's like another one. I swear to God, when I met her, it was like, oh my God, I've known you my whole life. There was something about her. I felt like I've known her my whole life. And another one, it's just pure delight to, to be able to design for her. There was the first show she did. We had already started some designs earlier in Seattle. We went through with those. And each time she comes back, we start to enter a new kind of level of understanding, trying to find a way to still keep Liv 
in something that she might be handed. Like I think the second show, she was Cleopatra. Then the journey is to find Liv's Cleopatra. Then we might do something big to enter and then slowly start turning that away. And that I had talked with the director at that point that we wanted to get her out of the Cleopatra headdresses then at some point and see Liv's beautiful, neat little blonde bleached head on Mm. her gorgeous cafe au lait skin. And so we could get into her, you know, because I think sometimes with the singers, you don't want a big false front on them. Exactly. They have always sung as themselves. Liv has sung as Liv Warfield. She does. And and she's extraordinary singer. So you don't want to, you don't want to take that. What I would consider to be sort of primary form of communication away from her. Exactly. Or put them in something that looks like a helmet on their head. So this was the third go round with Liv this time. I think we got even closer to, especially in the aerial act costume that was closer to who Liv really might dress like as a person. And yes, she is dressed more so than she would in one of her own personal shows. But I think it's just finding that moment when the two worlds hit and that they don't collide, but that they mesh in a beautiful way. And, you know, I have a really open dialogue with Liv and with Drea. And, you know, we're we're all kind of just in love with each other, really. It's such a delight to go on a journey with these people where you start one where with them. And then the next show, you just begin developing and developing and developing. What is developing is a greater and greater trust. You're in a sandbox of mutual respect. And your goal, of course, is to be unique is to bring new art to the audience. And that is for the artist, for the character, for the storytelling. Everything here is, I mean, we're blessed to have these opportunities. We are. And the goal, of course, always is to have a show that has different levels in it, dynamic, just talking practical stuff and color change and dynamics. Someone like I, Andrea, the director, we're the outside eye on that saying, well, no, you can't wear a red dress because she's wearing red. There are these moments and it is, it's to bring a show that feels like it belongs together, even though there's no storyline, that it's a balance. And when it also does some, some ways go back to the real hierarchy in circus and in comedia, which is upper clock characters, lower characters, and transformation. That's the word that I'm always so delighted by, that I have the chance to transform people. Mm. And I feel like every time I transform someone, even in response to who they are, I'm transforming myself also. I like that. I need to be all of those things myself. I'm one of those people who lives in a fantastic world and in my imagination and I'm playful. And so I'm so fucking lucky that I'm in a world where I get to do what I like to do. And I have to say what I can do. I, I'm so effing blessed with, with this. <laughs> it is amazing. And I have to say, you're probably capable of designing any common characters in place, but you work so well in the Alice in Wonderland world. You have freedom for things to become larger. I think even within the biggest thing you have, I wouldn't call it restraint, but you have control over what is it that you're communicating to the audience. How are you amplifying that character 
what their situation is, which is storyteller land. I do agree with you, Pat, on that. And and I think that's why I think I get such really great pleasure from it is, is because I'm taking a note that I find from them. We have people like we had Lilian Montevecchi, who she was a singer. And Lilian, she might want to wear something on her head. Everything was small, simple, clean lines. She never, you know, the costume never stood above her. She mm-hmm. didn't want what she was wearing to say who she was because she was who she was so strongly herself. And that is also provides dynamics for the audience, as you know, someone like that. Frank and Lilian, they had like kind of a strange little love affair in a way of, of <laughs> you know, that the preposterous of, of that made so much sense that they were so dynamic together because of their difference. And so there are those people. And in the circus acts, sometimes in some ways, almost the hardest costumes of all, because mm. they have to function repeatedly and guaranteed every night. Yeah, I think about the trio that is doing the roller skating. What's the name of that group? Uh, trio, trio Verte? Yeah, Trio Vertex. Vortex? Vertex. Vortex. They're amazing in a lot of things. And and I'm terrified every show that this girl's going to break her neck or get flung out in the audience. Like, they, they astonish me. But I look at their costumes and I think, wow, this is, has to be indestructible. It has to not get in the way of them grabbing or holding or dropping. Their life depends on this not having one extra strand of fabric. And it behaving the same way every single night. With that kind of thing, if you've done a lot of circus, you begin to build a repertoire in your mind of what each equipment, say like, is it the pole or the trapeze or juggling? Do you have a bit of a repertoire of knowledge of where the issues are? They can't frequently have things around their waist or hips if it's a duo act because they will be grabbed there. And then, of course, I just have to always say, at these circuses, our circuses, the crotch on the women is a big deal. And that is, you know, because they're frequently, they're in a wide second position with their legs (laughs) open in a suspended position at eye level. And so we spend a lot of time, and when we put them into tech, which we usually, we have to tech them in their costumes of course, yeah. Before we get to dress rehearsal to check what's going to be a problem, what might not work. Oh, I can't move. I can't stretch. This won't work. Or it's too much stretch. Or sometimes such weird rigging systems inside, yeah. you know, where there's like a loop to a belt that threads through this. And, oh, no, sorry. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Listen, that just proves you're busy. Yeah, that are invisible to people. And so, you you know, and each person's is unique. The pole act is like the grand destroyer of costumes. But you need to know all of that. And then we always engage in a very practical conversation, especially when we get a new act of someone we haven't had before and say, what can you have or not have? And what's going to get worn? Where can you not have this on a very, very practical, got to get that out of the way. And then we start. So we might set up a dynamic of who each person is on their entrance and then maybe remove a little bit of it so they can go ahead and do their act. So it's a journey. But then you've got all this backlog of, oh, we did this on this person and that'll work. Or, oh, have you ever tried that? And I think this might work because you got to have all your circus tricks ready to go. You have an arsenal, though, of 
experience. It's exactly that. So speaking of that, I want you to take me all the way back to the beginning of your career where you were involved with a different theatrical group where you were writing as well, performing, creating. What was the name of that company that you were working with? It was the Angels of Light. We were in a way a spinoff, but I wouldn't call us a spinoff exactly, of a group called the Cockettes. And we were a very social, political, wild and crazy theater, musical company of original theater in the 70s in San Francisco. And we did our shows for free. And this was a passionate, non-bending belief of ours to do this for free. And that anybody could come. How many years were you with that company? We went kind of from the early 70s to about 1984. Around 1979, we took donations to our great consternation. And that was for one thing only. That was to pay for lighting equipment and things like that. What was easy in the 70s, getting things for free, became harder and harder. None of us ever got paid. We worked for free. We worked forever on these shows. And we wrote them. Were you in one space or did you pick and choose spaces as as a show required? We traveled as things that we had access to, we could get our hands on and that we could afford or get, you know, for a while we were, we were able to get some free spaces through a neighborhood arts program. And then a lot of that stuff just started dissolving because paying a rental on a place was beyond our, our, our capabilities. And then we actually would say, oh, if you can't work with us if you have a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe it? What a lot of nerve. Talk about a high status attitude against something where you could have used any volunteer at all. Right. I know it, but it felt so good. There was um, an atmosphere and a group of communes that we were a part of in San Francisco. And it was all people involved in free food programs, underground newspapers, changing the society and trying to find a way of living that wasn't monetarily based. And did it last? No. Did we succeed all the way? No. But did it create something wonderful? Absolutely. And a lot of these people are still involved in food movements and they are still involved in radical lefty politics and they're protesting (laughs) and fighting the good fight still, anti-nuclear, all this stuff. But through storytelling and through presentation and whatever it is, it's still the theatrical arts, even in its wanting to educate or wanting to, we're all telling a story all the time. And we were very challenging to each other, too. And there was like a free newspaper that did reviews and talked about food and politics. It was hand-delivered to everybody, and they had a printing press. It was a very, very exciting time. And I'm still in um, in a Zoom group with a lot of them now that we meet on Sundays. And we started that Zoom group, of course, during COVID. And we do presentations for each other a lot of times of things we're working on might be from me showing my drawings of the people on the bus to archival work to something of with a political slant or poetry or somebody who's making jewelry or how do you work with egg tempera? Everything that we're all into 
it's very exciting and edifying. And was I a hippie? Yes, I was. And I have no embarrassment on confession, that confession at all. Speaking of your drawings, though, in in a fine art world, is some are your illustrations out there for sale of some of the beautiful work that you do, or is well, it kind I of always think private I collection? I always think I should, and people always say, "When are you going to do a book, or when mm. are you going to have a gallery showing?" And you know, I started out as a kid drawing. That was what I did. I drew and I wanted a horse, the basic me and play in the woods. That was me. And I wanted all of those things passionately. And I drew. And so still for me, drawing is heaven. It's like the one thing I can go back to that no one can take away from me or alter. And I love to draw. It just makes me insanely happy. And I have you know, so many illustrations and my backlog of all the costumes that never happened that were rejected is almost my favorite. And because usually it's no one wanted to go for it or something, but well, there to me, there's the book. The book is because when you draw what I can see in your drawings, the ones that I have seen on the walls of the offices and Andrea's house, there's a real flow state in the way you create how your costume communicates movement and, and so it's almost, I don't know, I guess I see many of them almost like they're animated. That is so perfect, Pat. You know, and I think a lot of it came because I performed too and took dance classes. I really like movement-oriented things. And I like to find a lot of times a pose or something that is kinetic in some way for me to start hanging the clothes on. And I, I do start there. And that's not, you know, maybe what they treat it, teach at Yale, but that's me. All my drawings that are my favorites are the ones that I've done where I'm not trying to do a nice drawing for a presentation. And I can make storybook great illustrations, but the ones that I've dashed off on the bus are the ones that, you know, I mean, as a writer and a performer, you must know that when you're in touch or whatever it is, when you are open, when it's just flowing from you, that that's the purest thing, right? Yeah. There's there's a purity in it. I mean, maybe that's really patting myself on the back. No, 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 no. Let me just, let me do this. Let me pat you on the back to say this. The difference that I can see immediately from the outside is that if a designer is making clothes to put on a mannequin, they showcase the clothes. But you are bringing a character life a character to life, like a midwife. And so, <laughs> so what happens when I see your illustration, I actually see the character's traits. I get, I get a sense of so much more than what the clothes are. And I'm not saying that they're practical or impractical or what the texture is, whatever you are actually creating a life form that is needs to move in the world. I'm incredibly touch that that's what you see. I guess that's what I think I'm doing, you know? I And I think, you know, I, I, I do give my drawings away a lot. Like Frank can get anything out of me. <laughs> then I'll, let me talk to him about getting a drawing out of you. But yes, yeah. I, I do a lot. We'll give drawings away um, to the performers, especially maybe a new one or something that meant something to me. Or I do. I give them away a lot. 
And then I think, shit, why didn't I get it together to make a copy of it, you moron? Before you beat yourself up too much, I guarantee you any of those people will get a copy back, back to you on request. So like they, they, they probably <laughs> cherish those drawings and the relationship in developing the character with you. I, I do too, you know, and I love those drawings. I know it's how people feel about their characters or their acts, but you know, when I'm doing it, I, I don't know what it is. I just feel this incredible closeness and intimacy, you know, that, and love. I know it sounds really corny, but it it's true. You know, there is certain, you know, there's just something, it, it's holy to me. I know that sounds really highfalutin, but those, it's holy to me. And I, I love my drawings and I like the ones with the coffee spills on them and the chewed up edges. And I love those. And I like the ones where, oh my God, there's somebody's phone number in the corner or the part of the grocery store. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I like it because I think it really speaks to and reflects the state of mind and the state of being in creation. And that's why I like that the interview, you know, that it was going to be about the process. Yeah. And you know how you think, I don't have a process. You got to be kidding. And I thought, no, I do. And I like talking about it because I like the process. I love the process. I love the fittings. I love tech and I love seeing the performance. I, I love all of it, but you know, I think the process is so fascinating and you know, everybody's is different. Regardless of the amount of experience you have, each time you step into a new original production or a new interpretation of a production, you do have a chance to dream. You've done costumes even for shows that have been around a long time. I know you worked with the American Conservatory Theater production of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas yeah. Carol has been around a Dickens' tale for all of those years. I wonder if for you as a costumer, as you begin to design and dress multiple characters in a little at a time and go through these fittings, what does it feel like when you come to that production after tech and your work is done? Now the show is running like to sit and sort of bathe in the cumulative development of all of that. Now wall to wall, the story's being told in, in these outfits. Well, I'm critical of myself, of course. And I know my, at American conservatory theater, there was this man, David Draper who ran the costume shop and he was a really talent and fun and we would sit there and tech together always. And when things melted down, torture each other and stuff. But I, he, <laughs> one of my favorite, he said, oh, well, one of your best quotes during text was, well, I kind of like some of it. And I said, did I really say that? And he said, yeah, you did. But, you know, they all know I love their work. They know it. And so I'm critical. But I think I like sitting there and seeing how the audience feels. I think, you know, that, of course, is the big temperature taker. I really am happy if I think the performers feel they look as they should, that if they needed help or if they have a character that I've not stepped on it, but I've given them something to go from and that they look appropriate and either attractive or not attractive or where they should be within the story. And that's what I really hope to 
achieve. And, you know, when I walked past the stock at ACT, they had a phenomenally sized room. And I would, I did like to walk through it and just, Olympia Dukakis wore that, or nobody wore this, but I really loved it. And seeing my friends or the stock at Zinzani after Lilian Montevecchi passed away, there were a few costumes that were just her. There was nothing more than it was her. And when I walked past them and saw them for the first time, I started crying. It just moved me so much. And then at one point we said, well, well so so-and-so fit into this, you know, because we recycle. I just thought, blasphemy! You know, <laughs> blasphemy! You know, what? I understand that. Right. you got to retire some uniforms and some oh numbers. God, I wanted yeah. to put it under glass or something. You know, it's like magic or witch doctors and working in mass in old theater is that you create this thing and then it's not dead when somebody's gone. Or, I mean, yes, a costume needs to be animated by the wearer, but in a combination with the performer and the design and the show and the script, it's more than any of those parts. And I feel like it's this live thing, you know, even if it's just in my memory, a true creation. I'm so lucky about what I get to do. Let me ask you this. Were you lucky enough? Did you get that horse? I did get that horse. You know what, Pat? I was from a lower middle class family. I entered contests to win a horse. You know, I did all this stuff. And my mother said, Deborah's going to get her horse. Deborah, you know, will get her horse. And then when I was about 15 or 16, two of my best girlfriends of who we were called the barn smell trio in high school, they got horses. It was a big deal for my family to spend this money. The caveat then became, you know, that I had, I got a job at Uncle John's Pancake House and I was going to pay for the rental of the stall because I lived in a suburb. And I got that horse and I was in heaven. My mother would go out there every day with me. No one ever rode the horse or barely touched the horse. But me, except for the time my dad tried to help us give the worm pill to it and it dragged my dad over the Dutch door. But I got that horse. I think it was for my mother, one of her crowning achievements in her life, you know, because you must have been so proud of being able to deliver that to you. She knew I wanted it. I talked, I drew, I nonstop. And then I used to love to ride the horse bareback in the Cleveland Metropolitan Park system, which is quite large. And I had a Palomino. I mean, come on. I had a fucking Palomino. And I, you know, I had my blonde hair and my horse had its blonde mane and tail. And I just thought, this is it. And I was so happy. I love that horse so much. You know, life did go on after that, but it was a big gift. It was a very big gift from my family. They loved you and they knew what it was that yeah. saying to your heart. So I'm so grateful to have had you today. And you're an extraordinary costume designer. You're an unbelievable illustrator, but I'm thrilled you got the horse and I hope that you still- <laughs> Me too. I hope you get to still play in the woods on occasion, but thank you for sharing your wisdom today. I play in the woods a lot still. I, I walk through the woods every day with my handicapped son out where he's in an institution and we 
look at the birds and we look at what's growing and I pull the ivy that's drowning the trees off the trees and he shakes his head and thinks I'm a brute. I am always who I was as a kid, someone who loves animals, loves art, loves nature, and I love my friends and I love what I get to do. I think we're all that way. I think we all yeah. are the kid that we always were. And it's just about how we allow ourselves to freely do that. And we don't hide from it. Sometimes we armor up and we keep people from knowing who we are. And that's because we think that we have to be the way the world wants us. But the truer we are to our own voice, ultimately the more joy we see. I feel like whenever I've done a show that I think I did not do a good job on was when I tried to do something that I thought somebody wanted and I ignored my own intuition and I looked at it and I thought, this looks like it has nothing to do with me. Not that I wanted to stand out, but it was not. I didn't listen and I didn't fight for what was right, you know, for yeah. me. And, and so, I mean, all my friends say, oh, you can tell it's a Beaver Bauer show. And I think I try to transcend that, but I guess I don't. Well, but, but before you apologize for it, let me just say this for anybody who has a voice out there, what a compliment that they can see you and not just something else, meaning yeah. it's a signature. And so I, I don't think you can fight your instinct on that for everybody. Do yourself a favor, look up Deborah Beaver Bauer on the internet and look at some of these costumes because we've talked about it, but you really just have to see how fantastical they are. It's just beautiful stuff. Listening to your own voice is the most important thing in the world and finding it. You see, they say that on Project Runway and all those things. But, you know, an original voice speaks to er speaks. It speaks. Spirit speaks and it comes through because it's coming from your spirit then. That's what I believe. Great advice to leave us with. Thank you so much, Beaver. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Shark with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creative.